Welcome. You are listening to a podcast brought to you by the Center for International Studies and Diplomacy. Let's talk about why we're here and what we're going to do. Um, background. I am absolutely amazed. One of the things that John and I always, John Christensen and I, always said to each other um, was, one day the press isn't going to talk about this. What are we going to do when that happens? Because we set out with a very deliberate strategy. I took a PhD student very recently. Um, to a Pizza Express opposite um, the British Library. And I went in and ordered a very particular table in the window. She said, what are you doing? She had come to study the history of tax justice. I said, we have to sit at that table. She said, why? Because that's the table where John and I agreed that our strategy was to put large companies on the front pages of newspapers for not paying tax in developing countries as a result of using tax havens. That's what we planned to do. And this was in 2005. We succeeded with our first company that year. We put Microsoft on the front page of the Wall Street Journal that year. And we've been doing it ever since. Google don't love me much. Google is my story. I did Google first. Um, Amazon and Starbucks, I was involved in both of them and many others along the way. Um, NPower, I know, lost a lot of accounts, I am told, by the industry as a result of the story about them in 2012 and their putting, routing dividends through Malta to avoid tax. It might have cost them a lot of accounts, so I'm told. So we've deliberately gone out of our way to create reputational risk. But we always felt that, that you know, this would go away. The time will come when the press would lose enthusiasm for this. And it appears that so far it hasn't. And that's largely because the tax avoiders and the tax evaders are still with us. Yeah, unfortunately, we might have been very successful at putting them on the front page of newspapers, but so far they have not stopped doing the behaviour. So it's still here. Um, We've had, obviously, a lot of change in regulatory behaviour since we began campaigning on this issue. Um, an enormous amount of change. Um, and I pinch myself sometimes and think, you know, how much can we have asked for? Did we ask for enough? Because we've had so much delivered. And yet the problem is not solved, although if you listen to the regulators... They will have told you that it was solved in 2010, in 2012, in 2015, and they will even tell you that today. They will keep telling you for different reasons the problem is solved, but it isn't. And so the inclination to abuse still needs to be tamed. And really there's an ongoing theme in here, which is part of this project which we're examining at City, the Coffers Project, and I'm, this is spread over six universities um, Oh, in the UK, it's Warwick and City, but Limerick's involved and Utrecht is involved, Copenhagen Business School, Brno, um, and other, one or two others more peripherally are involved in the Coffers Project funded by Horizon 2020. We've got 5.7 million euros to um, examine this over the next four years, and it's my job to coordinate output on the whole of the tax gap, which is an issue we'll come to. Um, that, I've discovered, just means I'm travelling a lot so far. <laughs> Last week it was Paris, this week it's Copenhagen, next week it's Berlin, then it's Austria, then it's... Oh, God, it just goes on. Um, the arguments that follow. The political environment is still changing. There isn't any stability. Look, we've had another change this morning, let's be blunt. 
Um, Brexit is going to change this environment yet again. Um, We've already heard it being said by Philip Hammond, the UK may become a tax haven. What Trump will do to international taxation, I really don't know. But in the meeting that I was at on Friday, and I've already told you where I was on Friday, somebody said, if Trump introduces Paul Ryan's um, um, border tax in the USA, every international tax agreement is basically torn up. We could face a whole new international political environment within days, if that is what he announces he really intends to do on coming into office. The fact is, at the moment that because the environment is changing so rapidly, the attempts to close down abuse are always behind the curve. If we look at this as a series of patterns, of waves, then the abusers are here and the others are following behind. There's a wave pattern. But the regulators are always behind the abusers at the moment. They have not yet worked out how to get in advance of them, although I think that is technically possible, and we're still arguing how to do that. As a result... Not only are the regulators behind the curve with regard to putting the regulation into place, implementation is running up to a cycle behind the abuse process. So they're always, at the moment, regenerating their behaviour well ahead of implementation of procedures to try and stop it. As a result, and this is going to be my conclusion, the inclination to abuse is still alive and, unfortunately, rather well, um, and therefore ongoing. So that's sort of where we're going in the argument. Let's just look at a little bit of history. I told you a little bit of my history involved in this before we started, um, and what has happened. The first ever report on tax havens was in 1981, the Gordon Report for the IRS in the States. Um, you can still find a copy. Um, it is you know, a rather quaint historical document these days. Um, there was remarkably little concern. I was training as a chartered accountant in 1981. Um, it now seems quite a long time ago. Um, I trained with what was called Pete Marwick Mitchell and Co. in those days, um, but which is now KPMG. Um, I think there are occasions when they regret that. Um, but that's life. Um, I'm a KPMG alumni, like it or not. Um, and that's where I learned how to use tax havens. I will be quite clear about it. They taught me to do it. Um, and then later on, during the 1980s, I actually saw it. Um, if you want to know how I know quite a lot about tax havens at that period of time, I stand before you a sinner. Um, because I didn't realise, I had to actually see what large firms of accountants were recommending. Amongst the things that I did in the 1980s was bring the game Trivial Pursuit to Europe. Um, it was a fairly mad occupation at the time. I set up my own firm of accountants when I was 26, and I signed, helped sign the distribution agreement for Trivial Pursuit for Europe when I was 27. I was running a company in Limerick and a company in London, 700 miles apart at the same time. It was all particularly stupid, um, but it was good fun, um, and Trivial Pursuit was, and I will tell you this without breaching any client confidentiality, did involve one or two offshore agreements to route royalties and all sorts of other stuff, all of which were structured by the big firms. I saw it, and I didn't like it, and that was what changed my mind. The firm I ran did never do offshore as a result. I would not go for the artificiality. I'd seen it. I'd seen what the big firms recommended. I'd been there, done it, and that changed my mind. And I said, I don't like this. But it took another decade to find the chance. During the 90s, awareness began to grow that there was abuse. The OECD responded with their 1997 um, initiative on harmful tax practices. 
it was an interesting initiative, largely because they couldn't actually define what a benign tax, competi- tax competitive practice was. They only looked at harmful tax competition, but because they could not define what was benign and therefore beneficial uh, tax competition, the whole thing became completely inoperable. It focused very heavily on tax rates, it focused almost entirely on um, tax administration, and it focused almost entirely on tax havens, as if places like London were completely innocent of any abuse, and it was entirely down to these little offshore locations. The EU was slightly more enlightened, by the way. They had a report in 1997 as well on the Code of Conduct on business taxation, which did actually focus upon activities in throughout the then EU countries. That has now fallen into disuse, unfortunately. Those whole things were, though, literally terribly tax-focused. They didn't understand, at that point, the true nature of what a tax haven was doing. So the focus, and I'll come back to what a tax haven really does, um, I suspect. I'm not sure it's in the slides, but if it isn't, I'll mention it anyway. Um, And that was stage one. Stage one was to try and close down the abuse from tax havens, literally on tax rates. Why did it fail? Because George W. Bush came into office and almost immediately said, anything with competition attached to it must be good. So tax competition has something competition in it, so it must be good. We did try and decide how many forms of competition we would have to go through before we could find one he didn't like, Um, but we decided that uh, that wasn't a particularly useful line of argument. Um, But by September 2001, he had closed, effectively closed down US cooperation with the OECD on tax competition. Then 9-11 happened and he suddenly was in a panic because he had just closed down the whole initiative that the OECD was running against tax havens and now we have 9-11 and he wants to close down tax havens for terrorist financing. He literally, the announcements were all in August, early September, and then 9-11 happens in the same month, and he has a crisis on his hands. So the whole focus from 2001 to 2008 of OECD activity shifted really to the FATF, which is also located in the OECD buildings in Paris, and was entirely anti-terrorism financing. And we went to the 40 plus 7 initiatives on terrorist financing, which looks fantastic, They've never worked, but they make it hell on earth to open a bank account if the bank really complies with their requirements. That is why you spend so long trying to open a bank account. Um, that is anti-terrorism financing. That is the practical outcome of 40 plus 7. It's never stopped money moving, but it does make it very difficult to open a bank account if you're legitimate. That's the broad summary of it. The easiest place on earth to open a bank account, by the way, does anybody want to know where the easiest place on earth to open a bank account is? Anybody like to guess the country? US. Absolutely right, of course. Yeah, yeah. The country most worried about it is the country on earth, where it is by far the easiest by, to open a bank account. Um, this has been subject to um, academic research by a chap called Jason Sharman, who was in Brisbane and is now at Cambridge, some difference. Um, so, <laughs> but, um, Jason's come over here now, um, and he did a lot of research. He did some research which was quite fun. Um, he did th- some research on bearer shares once and sent me the bearer shares for a company, which as a result I ended up owning it by mistake. <laughs> so I sent them back in the post and said, no, thank you very much. That's, if you, that's your idea of a joke. It's not mine. <laughs> but um, anyway, Jason has done some interesting research about this whole issue of how easy it is to access um, these things. So terrorist financing was the focus. And then we have 2007-8. The global financial crisis comes along, 
and you know there is this thing that you should never um, avoid the opportunity to exploit a crisis and so we did definitely exploit a crisis to full potential um, during this period the tax justice network had been and I'm going to explore it very soon coming up with a whole series of issues that could practically be used to tackle tax havens. We have been putting companies in the press. We've been talking about the fact that developing countries were losing out. We were talking about the fact that multinational companies weren't paying tax, and so on. And suddenly we have this issue of a crisis, and every politician wants to blame someone else for it. One of the pervading themes of all of tax justice discussion is the ability of politicians to blame anybody else but themselves. And so here was the opportunity to say, it didn't happen here, it happened over there. And over there happened to be tax havens. So suddenly tax havens were on the agenda. I was at the April 2009 London G20 summit. Um, bizarrely, I became the first ever non-journalist to ask a question at the G20 summit. Um, and I asked um, Gordon Brown, is this the end of tax havens? And he claimed it was. Ha ha. There we go. Poor old Gordon. Didn't get everything right. He certainly didn't get that one right. Um, it was quite amusing, though. Um, how they picked me out of a crowd of 4,000 by chance? There was no chance. <laughs> the whole thing was rigged. Don't you believe that G20 summits aren't choreographed down to the every single question that is asked? I assure you they are. Um, I was chosen for a reason. Um, the focus, however, shifted very rapidly. So we're going through waves... We go from the wave of terrorist financing, we go to tax haven abuse, and then we have UK Uncut and Occupy, which shifted the whole focus because they found that there was data on large companies abusing corporation tax and not paying corporation tax. The data was largely prepared by me. Um, I am at fault. Um, I gave UK Uncut all their data. I never went on a UK Uncut rally because actually they thought I was much more useful as an expert witness in the subsequent trials. <laughs> I therefore could never turn up and didn't. Um, I did appear at UK Uncut trials as an expert witness. Um, they used my data to show that there was corporate tax abuse and that there was a significant loss. This suddenly changed the focus. During 2011, this became the big issue by the time um, Margaret Hodge is beginning to ask questions in Parliament about all this, uh, where some guy sitting at the back of the room texting her questions, that was me, um, of Google, Amazon and Starbucks. Um, you know, these things are really hitting the headlines, not just here, but around the world. Um, and so there's a change of focus. David Cameron gets panicked by this at the end of 2012 and realises he's got to do something about it. He puts tax as the high priority of the G8 summit for 2013 in Northern Ireland. We enter the next wave of change because that's what really introduces the OECD BEPS process, which is now reaching implementation phase. Once that started, we then get a different change of focus again. Thomas Piketty and the Pamela Papers um, are beginning to put a focus upon wealth, inequality, and so on. So the issue keeps morphing, is the key issue. This is international political economy developing at a fairly rapid rate. Um, the Panama Papers is going on. In fact, as soon as I leave here, I've got to go and have a phone call with the EU because I'm being commissioned to work for them now on that issue. Quite astonishingly, you will find almost every response that has been initiated in one publication. 
Um, and I am a little surprised about that because I am one of the co-authors of that publication. In fact, I'm the main author of that publication. In 2005, John Christensen and I decided we were going to write down what we thought the Tax Justice Network was about. Um, and we wrote this publication, which was not very well read at the time. Um, I'm pretty sure I can confidently say. Um, and yet we set out an agenda of what we thought was necessary to tackle international tax abuse. Um, one or two of the things have not happened. The vast majority are on their way. So that was our initial publication. These are the issues that we raised. Civil society has had an enormous impact upon this agenda. Um, country by country reporting was one of the first things that we asked for in 2005. Um, again, I'm going to be totally egotistical. I made it up. Um, I actually made it up um, because I went to a conference where I was asked a question. I went to the conference solely to get away from my younger son. Um, in fairness, he was eight weeks at the time and he was an absolute nightmare. He did not sleep for the first five months of life. Um, and any opportunity to go and have a couple of nights away at a conference was worth taking. <laughs> so I blame Thomas for, entirely for country-by-country country reporting. He knows. He doesn't quite understand the consequences yet. But country-by-country country reporting, which was made up in October 2002 to get away from Thomas and written in January 2003 when he finally slept through the night... I am probably the only man in history who's ever going to write an international accounting standard to celebrate his son sleeping through the night. Um, <laughs> I think that's a claim I can safely make. Um, was an idea that I put forward, and it's very simple. All it says is multinational companies should publish a profit and loss account and limited other data, like number of employees, some balance sheet data, like total net investment, by jurisdiction. So... If you look at the accounts of a multinational company, first of all, the first thing to understand is that the accounts of a multinational company are a work of fiction. I say that as a chartered accountant. Um, Prem Sikra and I have long time considered submitting one for the Booker Prize. Um, there is no entity that does actually undertake the transactions that are published as if they are the results of a multinational company. They are actually a very particular and very selective view of the activities of that entity, and they do exclude from consideration every single internal transaction within it. And when you think that RBS is 1,300 companies, when BP is over 2,000 companies, the largest company we know of at the moment is GE Capital, which admits to 8,000 companies, every single pound, yen, cent, dollar, euro, whatever, is eliminated from view in those accounts. And we pretend that all the third-party transactions of all those entities are undertaken by the parent company when very clearly they are not. So it is a very selective view I argued that we should have another selective view. And that is still a consolidated set of accounts. It is adds up effectively all the transactions by country of all the entities in each country that it might have and publish that, including the volume of internal trade into and out of a jurisdiction. Why? Because tax abuse almost always takes place in internal trade 
the internal trade which is hidden from view in the group accounts, you could not find a better mechanism for delivering secrecy than consolidated accounts, quite literally, when added in combination to tax havens, which never let you see anything about what happens within them. Put the two together, you have the ultimate secrecy which multinational corporations want. The aim of this very simple accounting idea was to shatter the secrecy inside multinational corporations. Unsurprisingly, they have not proved to be very keen on it. It didn't go very far for the first couple of years. Then the Publish What You Pay coalition picked it up for the extractive industries and began to argue that it was necessary for the extractive industries where there's a high degree of corruption. So it was used as a corruption mechanism at first for campaigning purposes. But once the various NGOs who got involved with the Publish What You Pay coalition, and you all know their names, they are Oxfam, they are Save the Children, they are Christian Aid, they are Action Aid, and their equivalents around the globe, 400 old campaigners got used to this idea for one purpose. They then began to say, well, what else does it do? Well, it actually, it exposes tax haven abuse. Oh, does that matter? Yeah. And we began to argue, John and I began to argue, that the fourth leg of development, the first leg was aid, the second leg was trade, the third was debt relief, and the fourth was actually liberating these countries by giving them control over their own tax revenues when you could actually put them into a post-aid environment because we could demonstrate the scale of the losses was dramatic. So we argue for country-by-country reporting. We got the NGOs to be our tanks on the lawn and... This issue, which was not noticed in 2008 in the immediate post-crisis era, did become very significant once we got to Google. Because Google wasn't paying tax here, or in France, or in Germany, or in Italy, or anywhere else that anybody could identify, except (coughs) Ireland, possibly. Um, And then it turned out it wasn't in Ireland. It just wasn't paying tax at all. The first time we published it, we didn't even know that. We didn't know where it was actually even sending the money. Um, I had to publish the first version of the story with somebody I wouldn't normally cooperate with. That's called Rupert Murdoch. But he's got deeper pockets when it comes to libel law than me. Uh, So one has to choose one's friends occasionally to suit the depth of their pocket when you're going to be sued by Google. Um, And he hates Google. So that was a very useful combination. Um, But... Google gave us you know, the opportunity to say, where are you paying tax? Because we can't find out. And every politician suddenly said, well, that's interesting. Where are they paying tax? And this became the narrative that David Cameron picked up, pushed it through the Locker and Summit in Northern Ireland in 2013. I was at that summit as well. Um, it was very interesting. He announced it on a Saturday afternoon. On the Saturday morning, he had a press conference and his spokesperson stood up to explain what country-by-country country reporting was and then said, I don't really know. Richie, could you do this for us? <laughs> Which was a little embarrassing, um, given that I was recognised as being a bit of an opponent to David Cameron. Um, but I did it for him. Um, it was Oxfam who arranged for me to be there officially. Um, although unofficially, who knows? Um, it is now, and to my complete astonishment, it is a requirement for in a hundred, going to be a requirement in a hundred countries very soon for the submission of tax returns of multinational companies, but not for publication yet. What it basically will show is seven pieces of data. And this is exactly what we designed in 2003, which is also quite astonishing. It's almost the same as I literally first wrote. The turnover split between internal and external the number of employees, the profit before tax, the amount of tax that is actually accrued in the accounts, the amount of tax that is actually paid, the net assets engaged in the jurisdiction. 
the number of ratios you can build on the basis of that is very high. Um, I'm literally I'm working on a book at the moment on how to actually use the data because the OECD are asking me to do that. And it's great for impact. <laughs> and um, we are using that as a risk assessment tool. That is what the argument is. The difficulty that's arisen now is that because people realise it will be so effective at finding tax abuse, the companies are now all arguing that it is only tax data, and tax data by companies is secret by definition, and therefore we can't publish it, even though, in fact, it is accounting data. Turnover is not tax information, it is accounting information. Profit before tax is not tax information, it is accounting information. It's included in all the published accounts of companies. It's a perfectly normal thing to publish. In fact, 97% of the world's companies already publish country-by-country information. Do you know why 97% of the world's companies publish country-by-country information? Precisely. They only operate in one company. In one country. So therefore they publish, by definition, country-by-country data. Um, But they ignore that. The multinationals hate it. There's a massive campaign going on inside the EU at the moment. Whether we win or not, I don't know. But this idea, starting in the Tax Justice Network, is now considered the biggest output of BEBS. Automatic information exchange. In June 2009, I sat in the UK Treasury. And this was obviously in the immediate aftermath of the crisis. This is immediately after uh, Gordon Brown has said, we are going to end tax havens. How are we going to do it? We were sitting there and I said, well, it's very simple. All you have to do is get information from the tax haven to HM Revenue and Customs on which British resident person, and the same applied to every other country around the world, of course, but we we were in the Treasury. We need Jersey, Guernsey, Island Man, but also Singapore and everywhere else to send information to the UK on which British people have accounts in that location. We don't need precise details of every single penny that goes in and out. We need a smoking gun. That's all you need. They've got an account in this location in which they have a beneficial interest. Whether it's through an offshore company, an offshore trust, or in their own name, there must be something there that we can try to link to their tax return. The smoking gun is enough. I was told that this would not happen in my lifetime. Well, it started. (laughs) And it goes fully operational by 2018, when even Russia is getting involved. Well, we'll wait and see what the quality of the information is. This is one of the big ifs, by the way. Will we get really good quality information? Um, But automatic information exchange, we simply sat down, and they were coming up with these incredibly complicated schemes where you had to identify the nature of dividends and capital gains and what a life insurance policy could be or whatever else to try and get all this detail exchange. It doesn't matter. You just need a risk assessment tool. Has this person put on their tax return that they've got an offshore account or not? If they have, then you're fine. If they haven't, you know you've got something to ask questions about. So we've gone for automatic information exchange, and that is happening. That, again, was one of the things we suggested in 2005. Beneficial ownership data was another thing we asked for. In 2005, who owns companies and trusts? Um, you would think it should be fairly easy to know who owns a company and trust, but of course a vast number of companies and almost every single company that is owned offshore is owned through a nominee structure. Now the nominee structure can simply be paying somebody to lend their name. Um, there were plenty of people who have in history lent their names. The old one was what was called the Sark Lark. Um, Sark, for those who don't know it, is one of the smallest of the Channel Islands. Um, it is still a feudal state. Um, ruled by the uh, lord or whatever he is called of Sark. Um, there is no democracy. 
Um, there are 700 people live there, and at one time the postman had 2,500 directorships because there was no tax in Sark, and so so long as the director was there and a lot of companies were taxed on the basis of where their control was, and supposedly the postman on Sark, um, a gentleman who I did meet once in the 1980s, I have to tell you, um, <laughs> was supposedly in control of these companies, which of course he could not have possibly been, um, and it was a man. Um, there was only one um, but, you know, and there were plenty of other people on Sark who did this but this meant that the Sark lot worked because the companies were supposedly resident in Sark and there was no tax in Sark they didn't supposedly trade anywhere else complete secrecy um, and they supposedly owned these companies as well of course they had signed documents to say I am doing this on behalf of somebody else but you couldn't find the document so you had no idea and this is still true it can be arranged in all sorts of ways. It can be arranged through trusts, which are incredibly commonplace in um, common law jurisdictions. It can be arranged through foundations in civil law jurisdictions like Liechtenstein, uh, where you can have foundations which apparently have nobody who created them and nobody who benefits from them. Um, and therefore there is no beneficial owner. So you have had to work quite hard to attach a beneficial owner in those cases. Uh, we have actually worked out a mechanism through the EU to do that. Um, but beneficial ownership is critical because you can't automatic, do automatic information exchange on who's got a bank account where if you can't prove who owns a company. The UK is now demanding that people in the UK who own companies file information on who the legal owner of the company is as well as who the beneficial owner is. Sorry, I should have put that the other way around, who the beneficial owner is as well as the legal owner. We've always filed legal ownership supposedly, now we have to file beneficial ownership as well. In truth, I am informed by the OECD that the UK's offshore tax havens are much better at this than anybody else in the world at actually discovering who beneficial owners are. And in fairness, I'm inclined to think that's probably true, which is a bit radical of me, um, to admit they might get something right. The only difficulty is they absolutely refuse point blank to let anyone know. In the UK, this information has got to be published. In the tax havens, it won't be published. So they're now doing something which is really interesting, which is transparency and secret. <sighs> I, I, I'm think that one's a little difficult to convince people of the merits. So at the moment, we just don't know. I mean, we're just saying we're not convinced. We don't care if you're doing transparency in secret because we can't see it. We don't know it's working. We can't see the benefits of it. We actually need to know who we're doing business with. The basic premise of this is very basic economics. If you don't know who you're doing business with, if you don't know the scale of the company, if you don't know the accounts and what it's done with the assets that are entrusted to it, you cannot effectively allocate resources within an economy to ensure that the market works. Companies work inside a market economy. If you actually have any belief in the fundamentals of market economics, then you need data. And you have to remember that the whole point of a tax haven is to deny people data. One of our great successes came when, um, and I can remember the arguments John and Christensen and I had for ages on whether we should rename tax havens as secrecy jurisdictions, which was another of my mad ideas. Um, the name had actually been used before by Senator Carl Levin, who was in the States, who was very good on tax issues indeed before he retired, uh, but he hadn't defined it. I nicked the term from him and defined it as a place which deliberately creates regulation and legislation for the benefit of people who are not resident in that place and match it with a deliberate veil of secrecy that 
hides from view those who are making use of that regulation. Secrecy was the key product, we argued. You wouldn't do tax abuse in a tax haven if you could be identified, because there would be no point. If you could be identified, you'd have to pay the tax in your home jurisdiction anyway. If you were known to be cheating, you probably wouldn't do it, because people don't like being called cheats. I've noticed this. So we actually said that secrecy was the enabling tool, and we renamed them as secrecy jurisdictions, which we could define, and we have failed miserably to define tax havens. I've got a book coming out next month which has got the world tax haven on the front cover. I wish it hadn't, but... My publishers insist I've got to because that's critical to its sales pitch, they say. I still can't define a tax haven, but a secrecy jurisdiction I can define. And we're trying to shatter the secrecy with beneficial ownership information. Unfortunately, the UK, which has adopted this, has a little problem. We have 3.6 million companies in this country. Of those, on, on average, at any point in time, six, 700,000 are too young to file data. But every year... Two and a half million plus companies should be filing information and 400,000 plus don't file anything. They just don't submit the data at all. Nothing. They're formed, they exist, they don't file accounts, they don't file any information on ownership, they disappear, the owners probably create a new one, carry on the illicit trade they're doing in it. We have no resources, nothing whatsoever to investigate it. 400,000 corporation tax returns a year are not submitted in the UK um, on the basis of parliamentary answers that I have secured. Um, That's 20% of all tax returns are not submitted in this country by corporations, which is a staggering ratio. And according to the government, that must be because none of those companies trade. Oh, come on. We sent them lists of hundreds of companies on eBay and Amazon, which are trading with UK registered numbers, which then disappear and never file accounts. And yet they say none of those companies traded. They did. They've got product reviews by people on Amazon saying we got the product and we liked it, etc. We know they trade. The biggest company we found, which has not filed accounts so far, turned over a billion. It was in Kyrgyzstan, admittedly, but it was a UK company. Um, so we know this is going on. We know we're not getting decent beneficial ownership data. We know we've got a long way to go to solve this one. Those are the three basic tools which have been used so far to curb the inclination. Now, there are other technical tools which the OECD has been putting in place, but they are deeply technical. No one knows whether they're going to work as yet or not, including things like general anti-avoidance principles in tax law. If you try to abuse the law, then what you try to do will not work because your intention undermines your right to claim the benefit. Um, the UK's anti-abuse law is pretty rubbish I can say that with confidence I wrote it Um, with others I also wrote the amendment which the Labour Party put down it was very naughty to actually write the government's legislation and the Labour Party amendment uh, to the same legislation and have them both discussed on the same day it was good fun (laughs) I actually sat in the commons and watched the people debate across the um, dispatch box both debating amendments that I had written um, and they had the decency to look up and laugh at me while they were doing it. David Gork, the Chief Secretary of the Treasury, said, for once you couldn't answer back. <laughs> um, uh, so we need to improve it. Where are we now? Corporate tax abuse is still taking place, and there is still secrecy. We haven't got country-by-country country reporting yet, except for banks in Europe. 
except for banks. And we managed to get this data for banks from 2014-15 onwards. The data we've already got, and we're building at the moment a database of all the banks who published this data, shows... I mean, my heart was in my mouth when I did my first run of this data. You know, suppose they don't shift profits into tax havens. Suppose I've spent 13 years talking about the fact they're doing this stuff, and they don't. But they do. (laughs) I promise you. Singapore has vastly too much profit. Um, The first time Barclays published this information, what was the average uh, uh, revenue per member of staff in the UK? Anybody like to guess? 54,000 quid. What was the average revenue per member of staff in Luxembourg? 98 million. (laughs) Some disparity. What was the average profit per employee in Luxembourg? Oh, that was also 98 million. (laughs) The staff cost was so low that they disappeared. The numbers were virtually the same. Um, Those employees in Luxembourg are so productive. Just phenomenal. (laughs) Um, God, you just want to be in Luxembourg all the time if you're a banker. Um, It's obviously a fix. And in fact, actually, it's very interesting what the behavioural response has been. Because the profit per employee in Luxembourg of Barclays has tumbled since then. They are responding to the public pressure. Um, I prepared the analysis of their first report within an hour of it coming out. It was in The Guardian the next morning. And boy, were Barclays unhappy. They tweeted all sorts of rude things about me the following morning. Um, But it worked. They've changed their behaviour. The intention is to change behaviour. Beneficial ownership data is going to happen, but we're not going to see meaningful information exchange. Um, But fear of exposure remains an enormous challenge. What I'm told at the moment, I mean, amongst my other hats, I am um, an advisor to the Local Authority Pension Fund Forum in the UK. I'm their tax advisor. You may not have heard of the Local Authority Pension Fund Forum, but it's what coordinates the activities of 71 of the 90 local authorities' pension funds in the UK, as it says on the tin. The great advantage for me is that if I want to go and see a company and I say I'm going as an academic, they might say yeah or no. But if I go as the local authority pension fund forum, I say I've got £190 billion under management. And mysteriously, that helps open doors. It does mean I can't talk about which companies I've seen, and I won't. But the, I've seen a fair number of FTSE companies in the last year. They are getting rid of tax haven subsidiaries as fast as they can. They know country-by-country country reporting is going to happen. They're quite sure within five years they're going to have to publish this stuff. They don't want to be on the front page of a newspaper. We're generating behavioural change. That was the idea. It's going on. We are now doing a longitudinal study, time series study at City on changes in corporate structures over a period of time to see whether this really is happening. So that's going to be happening over the next few years. But at the same time, the world is changing. I like this quote. It's Martin Wolf. Martin and I have an interesting relationship. Interesting is the operative word. <laughs> we do know each other. Um, we are, in short, at the end of both, and it should be an economic period, that of Western-led globalisation and a geopolitical one, the post-war, post-Cod War. Hey, we're back with Iceland. No, we're not. Cold War. God, my typing is lousy. My blog is well known for its typing mistakes. Every day I produce lots of them. I also write 3.7 blogs a day, so my argument is quantity rules over quality on typing. Unipolar moment of a US-led global order. I am a lousy typist. I don't even read them until I do that sort of thing. And that was Martin Wolf this year. Are we at the end of an era? Is globalisation literally going to break down? I don't know. I don't know. Are we trying to bring globalisation, add localism to global 
um, the global economy. That is what country-by-country reporting is about. We are definitely trying to add the idea that there is local accountability to a global corporation. I am so bored with hearing directors of multinational companies telling me, oh, we don't think about geography, Richard. It never comes up in our considerations. So why have you got so many subsidiaries in the Cayman Islands, then, if you aren't considering geography? There was the one who told me that they had an operation which was routed through Cyprus merely because it was convenient. We had a company there already. Yet it also saved you a fortune in tax on the routing of profits from Africa through Cyprus, through Switzerland, through the Netherlands, to the Netherlands Antilles. By pure chance, there was no geography involved in that decision at all. Nah, none at all. Now, come on. Of course there is geography involved in these people's decisions. And hold them to account is important. I believe that what tax justice has been doing is actually part of the counter-narrative to populism at the moment. Um, It's a big claim to make. Um, I'm not making that as an academic, I'm making that as a campaigner. Um, But it's what we would like to argue, um, that there is the possibility of actually saying, but we can hold these corporations to account in a different way, and therefore you don't actually need to overthrow capitalism to achieve the goal. There are a number of ways in which we can tame Um, In fact, still, the abuse that's going on, and I wanted to be practical. I told you, uh, for those who were here before we started, that we've always tried to put solutions on the table. Um, One of the things that I think we did wrong in tax justice was to actually focus on the international. Um, Domestic tax abuse is bigger than international tax abuse. Uh, By some way, I'm quite convinced, have always been convinced. Um, there are only two estimates of the tax gap in the UK. The tax gap is the difference between the tax that should be paid if the tax system worked as HMRC think it should, based upon what Parliament has legislated and the amount of money they actually get. The two estimates are their estimate and my estimate. According to them, I'm a charlatan, and according to me, they're a charlatan. Um, We really get on on this one. Um, Their estimate is made up of an awful lot of illustrative estimates, which the FT once kindly called numbers they made up, (laughs) which I think is absolutely accurate. At least I have the decency to show my workings. (laughs) They may be wrong. Look, come on, I don't have the quality of data they've got. They won't give me the data, but my estimate is three times bigger than theirs. I work very largely on GDP downwards. They work on tax returns they receive upwards. I point out tax abusers don't send you tax returns, and that appears to be a fundamental problem in your model. Mine at least works from the national economy, what's actually happening and how much is paid. I therefore end up with a bigger number. We are, and that number is bigger domestically than internationally. So um, I think we need to focus on the domestic scene. Here's some things we could do. We could calculate tax gaps. Um, This is one of the tasks, again, that this um, EU funder project is going to look at. I'm responsible for. We are looking to calculate tax gaps for every EU country. There is an EU estimate at the moment of the tax gap. It's one trillion euros. Um, I hate to tell you, I'm also responsible for that. Um, We can improve the quality of that no end. It's based upon data on shadow economies and effective overall tax rates and Some of the people who prepare shadow economy data say, but if you taxed the shadow economy, there wouldn't be so much economic activity. My argument is actually, no, you're wrong. There would be more economic activity. We would increase the volume of economic activity if we taxed it, because, in fact, 
there would be fair competition. There would, in fact, not be the short-term players in the market who don't invest, who don't train, who do simply extract, who do not, therefore, create added value by putting money into their long-term business development. They are simply extracting reward at cost to somebody else. If we had a totally fair economy where people were encouraged to look long-term because they knew that all their competitors were competing them on a level playing field, they would invest more, they would train more, we would therefore get more growth because productivity would increase. That's my counter-narrative to why um, taxing actually reduces the scale of the economy. Can I prove it? No. Does that my argument fit with economic theory at a higher level than I think that theirs does? Yes. We can argue that one for hours to come. We need to properly regulate companies in places like the UK, where we have simply cut the number of staff regulating companies. So basically, we do not have regulated companies in the UK. We do not have any company regulation in this country. There has not been a prosecution for breach of company law in Scotland, which has its own company register since 2008. You will see some activity on the SNP on this soon. Because they noticed this. Well, I did prompt them, I have to admit, and they're getting quite excited about it. Why aren't we seeing fair competition in Scotland? Why apparently can you do tax abuse in Scotland without getting away with it? Um, We actually need to do something very simple. We have created International Automatic Information Exchange. So we can now get information from the Cayman Islands to HM Revenue and Customs on companies owned by British people in Georgetown a place where they make it clear I'm not very welcome, so I've never tried to go. Um, The head of the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority, their chief regulator, once described me as the head of the international tax Taliban. I wouldn't have minded, but I was in Washington at the time, and if you're going to be called a member of the Taliban, please don't do it when I'm in Washington. Anyway, um, we need to do exactly the same, this automatic information exchange, inside a country. We don't. We have a system that Barclays in Stockport need to identify every single company to whom they provide services where there is a foreign shareholder, because we have to do information exchange on foreign shareholders. But we don't send the information to HMRC on the British shareholders. So we have no idea who owns the 400,000 companies who don't send incorporation tax returns a year and whether they actually do use a bank account or not. If we did know that they used a bank account and just knew the amount they deposited in it in a year, we would be able to risk assess precisely who we want to chase. And if we simply (coughs) removed, and and Dan Plesh would like this, I have a funny feeling, uh, if we removed limited liability from all those companies who did not submit a corporation tax return and made the directors responsible for the tax, I think that might induce a little behavioural change. I think it would. That's my footnote to Dan, (laughs) given that I'm here today. (laughs) So that's um, an argument. I wrote the legislation to do that. It was presented to the House of Commons. I do write law as a little hobby. Um, The late Michael Meacher presented it to the House of Commons as a private member's bill to actually put that into place. And Jacob Rees-Mogg talked it out of Parliament on the basis of, well, A, Michael was a socialist in tooth and claw, and I don't want to deal with socialists. And two, we were trying to increase the amount of tax paid. No, Jacob, we were trying to get people to comply with the law, which I thought was something that you conservatives were quite keen on. But apparently not. Not when it comes to tax. 
We obviously need to resource tax authorities properly, which does mean HMRC should not be cutting staff regularly. The number of staff at HMRC has halved in a decade. If you're trying to collect more tax, don't sack your debt collectors. This is a very simple maxim. Another 5,000 are scheduled to go soon, which will actually reduce the staffing below 50,000 there. Scrape all available databases. I like database scraping. It's sort of, I do a lot of database scraping these days for my research work. Amazon and eBay, we know, have vast numbers of traders who are not paying tax. We think the cost is $2 billion a year. That would solve the current crisis in social care in this country. Simply scrape Amazon and eBay to find the fraudsters and we can pay for social care. Will we scrape the databases? No. We have sent lists of hundreds of companies to the revenue and they say they're not interested. Whether that's true or not, but the willingness to do any of these things seems to be completely absent. So there's a massive scale of political change required. I will tell you what the politicians in Westminster, and I spend a fair amount of time hanging around Portcullis House at Westminster, which is you know, where the MP's offices are. Um, they tell me they can't do this, and do you know why? Why? They're all petrified of white van man, as they call him. He's always white van man, not woman. Um, uh, who are the people who are running small businesses who they think will have a backlash if they're seen to attack the domestic tax abuse economy. Sad but true. And we need to actually look at the new international, uh, creating a new international dialogue. I mean, there is a problem of wealth concentration. Here I would recommend um, Brooke Harrington's book, um, her new book. Uh, Brooke Harrington is at Copenhagen Business School. Um, Her book is called um, Capitalism Without Borders. It's about the wealth management industry. Um, I've by chance, we were writing books with remarkably similar themes. My new book out next month is Dirty Secrets, How Tax Havens Destroy the Global Economy. Um, and we're both writing about basically how tax havens undermine any chance of capitalism working properly. Because it denies information, it concentrates wealth, it encourages rentier activity because most of the money is held in trusts and trustees have a legal duty to be fiduciarily conservative. Um, it does not, um, most of these arrangements do not allow the dissipation of wealth between generations. It remains in trusts because it's not dissipated. Actually, that completely breaks the pattern of generations past because normally you make the genera- some money in the first generation, it's consolidated in the next generation, and the third generation puts it all on red and it blows apart. Have I got to finish? No, they just gamble it away. The third generation literally blow it. Um, they have the fun, and the fourth generation wonder what the hell happened and like to think they're still grand but aren't. Um, unfortunately, that's the pattern that trusts are trying to break by con- keeping the money concentrated and not dissipating it. This means that the normal behaviour of past patterns of capitalism where money recirculates to those who take risk and therefore create new wealth is not happening. We're getting a rentier economy instead of an entrepreneurial economy, and that's fundamentally changing the nature of it. This is why I think we still have to break at an economic level the nature of tax havens. This is my argument. I'm going over to Jersey to argue this on the 7th of July. That will go down well. Um, Every time I turn up in Jersey, the press know within 20 minutes of me arriving, and I never tell them. Who does? (laughs) Who does tell the Jersey Evening Post that I've arrived? Anyway... Um, so we need to still tackle tax abuse. Uh, I don't know what this slide says. Um, we're about the survival of capitalism. I find it very strange that I argue for the survival of capitalism um, against those who should be its defenders. 
I mean, I've sat with the big four firms of accountants and say, you are the biggest threat to worldwide capitalism that there is. They are. They are the architects of this whole system. If you look at the one persistent, continuing feature of tax havens, it isn't banks, it isn't any one company, it is the big four firms of accountants. They are in them all. They underpin the entire structure. Without them, this could not happen because the multinational companies couldn't use them because there would be no auditors. Again, they don't particularly like me saying that, but I haven't seen KPMG since Friday. They've just launched their new responsible tax um, website, um, and they have, in fairness to them, invited me to write the first response on it. What does it say? If you guys one day become accountable for what you do, then maybe I'll believe you're serious. But at the moment, we can't get a set of accounts for KPMG globally so or locally, so what's the point of bothering? Um, we are going to see, whilst this situation persists, morphing of the nature of capitalism. I think capitalism will continue to morph to try and get around anything we do. Where it will go, look, I don't know. I'm not clairvoyant. But I believe that unless we hold capitalism to account, we're in trouble. Um, will that happen? Um, with Philip Hammond at the um, Treasury, with Theresa May saying that we might turn the UK into a tax haven, with Donald Trump um, next week in the States and his whole attitude towards this and the idea that tax competition is good coming up the agenda again, where it, which it quite clearly is with these people in charge, obviously I'm worried. Um, are we going back to 2001? Are we going to have to go back to the drawing board and come up with new solutions again? Maybe. Um, this space is going to be um, an interesting one over the next few years. But abuse is going to continue. That's the one thing I'll tell you. That's it. That's what I was going to say. Can I go home now, please? Oh, no, no, you want to ask some questions, don't you? <laughs> wow, that didn't take long. You jumped in first. Um, yeah, I have to apologise for, for arriving a bit late, so maybe you um, mentioned this in the beginning of your talk, but what about non-DOM status? I mean, oh, non-DOMs. I mean, if you're talking about um, domestic tax evasion, that, that's the best thing to turn London into what will continue to be a fantastic yeah. tax haven for HMWIs after um, Brexit. I spent a long, yeah, I mean, I spent a long time working on non-DOMs. Um, I made several programs for the BBC on non-DOMs and God knows what else. Um, yeah, non-DOMs are, an, a, I mean, first of all, I think non-DOMs, for those, do, do people know what non-DOM status is? Okay, non-DOMs are people who are resident in the UK, but whose natural home is not in the UK. So you claim that your natural home is in another country, even if you're a long-term resident here. Now, effectively, every first-generation immigrant to the UK can always claim, I will go back home in certain circumstances, like, when I retire, I'll go home. That's all they have to say, and they're a non-dom. Second-generation immigrants will acquire their parents' domicile status at birth. That's the rule. By the way, it's their father's domicile status. Um, this is extremely sexist because the rules are 200 years old so fathers matter, the mothers don't so you can't acquire your mother's status if your father is acknowledged which is pretty extraordinary but that's the way it goes and so the second generation acquire their parents' non-dom status so a lot of second generation um, immigrants will therefore be able to claim non-dom status therefore I am Irish with a surname like Murphy and a father who is an immigrant I am Irish except it's perfectly obvious that I haven't tried to claim to be a non-dom. Um, although I do actually have an Irish passport, just to be perverse. Um, but that doesn't prove anything. Non-dom status is not dependent on nationality, is not dependent on passports, anything else, completely independent of it. 
It is your country of origin to which you owe allegiance. Um, in the past, you might have said it's who do you support in cricket test if you use the Norman Tebbit rule, which of those of you are old enough to remember Norman Tebbit. Um, and he actually had a thing about if you come to the UK, you must support England at cricket. What a load of nonsense that was. Um, anyway, all of this. I mean, actually, my argument is it's actually contrary to race relations laws. Because we actually have the state providing discrimination on the basis of your national origin, which has been outlawed under race relation law since 2003, but those laws do not apply to the state. The state cannot breach race relation laws in the UK. How bizarre is that? Um, anybody else can, but the state can't in the provision of its services. But otherwise, this would appear to be in total breach of the race relation laws because it's obviously providing a positive discrimination. Where do they originate? In the history of empire, that obviously deeply socially beneficial and enlightened era that the UK had, um, the intention was to indicate quite clearly who was and was not a true Brit. Remember, until 1911, there were no passports. We ruled a quarter of the world, and those in London wanted to indicate those who were really British and those who were... In the colonies. I'm sorry I'm using the language, but that is what the language was at the time. And the intention was that non-domiciled were discriminated against because they weren't truly British by being domiciled. But it turned out that actually those who went abroad from the UK the second sons of wealthy families, by and large, at the time we're talking about, realised that becoming non-domicile was an advantage because they didn't have to pay tax in the UK on what they earned in the colony where they had been sent to get them away from the family. And therefore they began to claim non-domiciled status to actually avoid paying tax at home. And so the whole thing accidentally inverted. The same as tax havens are largely accidental creations this was an accidental inversion so what was meant to be prejudicial against the non-dom actually became advantageous to the non-dom and became an industry in its own right so London is now the centre for billionaires simply because they don't pay tax it. now you do now have to pay for the privilege of being a non-dom after seven years so if you come to the UK and you want to remain a non-dom after seven years you have to pay and I think it's 50,000 a year now I might be wrong it might be more. It might be it's gone up to over 100, has it? But even so, if you're Roman Abramovich, the chance to pay no additional tax by being resident in the UK and nowhere else but not paying tax because you keep all your income outside the UK, I think 100,000 is chicken feed is the way to get around that. So this is obviously abusive. Um, there's only one other, two other countries in Europe have a non-dom. One is Ireland by um, acquiring UK law in 1922. Um, so they do have a form of non-dom, but they've never exploited it, partly because nobody wants to go and live in Ireland. It's damp. Um, it's a bit like choosing to live in the Isle of Man. If you're going to choose in any tax haven in the world, don't choose the Isle of Man. <sighs> it really is soggy. <laughs> um, uh, but Ireland has not exploited it. Italy has always had it, based upon the concept of empire. It just happens to be a Roman law, literally Roman law legacy in Italy, and they're just beginning to revive it on the basis of that. Um, this is quite deliberately, blatantly discriminatory. The equivalent of it is selling passports, and there are countries in the world who sell passports. Oh, oh, including us. We now sell passports. You can come to the UK and buy a passport if you bring... Is it a million or is it two million now? Two. 
I don't remember the numbers anymore. I have to admit, there's too many of them. So a couple of million, you pay, you arrive in the UK, buy a passport. But you're still non-domiciled. Isn't that great? So you don't pay tax it. I bought a house in London for two million. That's enough to prove I'm committed. I don't pay tax. Get a passport. Chuck it in for free. The whole system orientated to work. Um, I didn't mention it. Yeah, we should be getting... I've, I've long argued we should get rid of non-dom rule. Do I see that any chance of that whilst we have um, this government? No. Gordon Brown said he was going to get rid of it in 1995. Did he in the 13 years he was floating around um, Downing Street? No. Never. Once. Why? Because they remain perpetually frightened that people will leave the UK. There is no evidence that people do. The research on people relocating for tax is that people don't relocate. Well, a few sad people do. Uh, most of them accountants, lawyers and others who are actually making money by going to a tax haven and working there. The pinstripe mafia, as Prem Seca calls them. Um, but the vast majority of people will not relocate for tax. In the states, where sometimes there is a 10% tax differential across state boundary lines, particularly around New York, um, it has been discovered that people won't even move 20 miles on occasions to take advantage of that. People with significant incomes won't move away from their families, their children's schools, the tennis club, their mother-in-law or whatever it is, who is tethering them to the spot. They won't do that. Not for tax. So uh, it's significant, but not that significant. It's all a charade. Because most of the non-doms actually who exploit it now are only here for a while, or they're internationally migrant altogether, because they're part of that ultra-elite of wealth. Um, do I understand you correctly that really it would be possible for an individual country to stop tax evasion, not only domestic, but uh, international... Tax evasion to accept, I mean, they would have a problem with companies perhaps not, not wanting to come with new investment to the country because of that, but basically they could stop it, is that correct? Not entirely. I mean, we will never stop tax abuse. Let's be clear about it. We can only curtail tax abuse. Can any country at the moment improve its curtailment activity I don't know a country in the world that could not do better than it does. I would start with domestic automatic information exchange as my number one mechanism. It's just so easy. There is now no cost because the systems are in place because the OEC demands it for international information exchange and the US has demanded it for the FATCA uh, arrangements. The Foreign Accounts Tax Compliance Act in 2010 required that all these systems be put in place for any bank that wanted to trade in the States. Well, every bank needs to trade in the States because every bank needs to trade in dollars, so every bank has to comply with FATCA, which has therefore required these automatic information exchange systems and identifying clients within banks and their companies countries of origin has to be there they have to do it so the data exists so if the data exists and you've even got an information exchange system for international purposes why don't you just turn on that extra little bit and do it domestically and therefore identify who owns all your domestic companies with a verifiable third-party source who has required you to slap a passport on the table to prove who you are so yeah we could make real progress domestically everywhere 
Now, not everybody, of course, tax evades in companies. Some people don't tax evade in their own name. And not all tax evasion is about trading. You have to remember that tax evasion is also about capital taxation as well. And tax evasion is about inheritance and wealth taxation. And some is just simply criminal behaviour. I mean, let's be blunt. Some is not tax motivated, but nonetheless tax is not paid. I mean, that's, we have a very significant fraudulent activity, which is not about tax abuse per se, but tax is not paid on it. Uh, it contributes to GDP, although that's a good question, how much it's counted. You know, recently, prostitution was added into GDP. It's a criminal activity in most countries, but we actually added it in for the first time, and GDP went up in most countries around Europe by at least 1%. Um, amazing. How you can get growth just by literally changing the numbers. Um, so GDP would grow if we counted um, tax abuse properly as well. That would be an interesting goal for politicians. <laughs> <laughs> How to grow your country. Count the crooks. Um, yeah, easy. Um, get them to pay tax. But yes, we could definitely do that. Could we do it internationally? It is harder to see country-by-country country reporting working on a national basis. It's not impossible. Um, we have got the legislation through UK Parliament this last September to require the Treasury to begin regulation for the UK to have country-by-country reporting without Europe. Unfortunately, there was no timescale attached to the legislation, which is the only way we got it through. Um, I did write the amendment. It was proposed by Caroline Flint. It was the only amendment that was passed to the Finance Bill 2016. Um, The government conceded it because they were going to lose the vote. We actually got a majority of MPs to sign up, at which point they didn't put it to a vote. They just conceded the um, amendment. So there is regulation in place to require it for the UK. Any country could do it. Frankly, only major financial centres can actually really benefit enormously from it. Um, The EU can deliver it. The EU has regulation in place to deliver country-by-country reporting. But the tax haven states within the EU at the moment are bringing a legal case through the EU Council to oppose the Commission. Um, And so the Council is fighting the Commission. The Commission wants country-by-country reporting. The Parliament wants country-by-country reporting. And the Council, where ten states have said they don't, are trying to bring a legal case against them to say this is tax data, not accounting data, and therefore it must be secret. We do not know the outcome of that case yet. The case that it is tax data looks particularly flimsy because nobody assesses tax on this basis. So how is it tax data is the obvious question. But um, So internationally it is more difficult, but nationally every country can make substantial steps forward in tackling tax abuse. Substantial steps forward. I, when Jeremy Corbyn said... Well, Jeremy Corbyn didn't say, let's be totally honest, um, in the August 2015 that he was going to collect $120 billion of tax from tax, uh, the tax gap, which was unfortunately um, copied into his um, economic policy from my blog. Um, I, I am the author of Corbynomics. Um, I didn't write it for Jeremy. Can I add that? Um, I just wrote it and then discovered. I mean, it was an amazing event. I was phoned on a Tuesday to say, would I speak at the launch of Jeremy Corbyn's economic policy on the Thursday? And I said, well, I'm accustomed as I am to speaking in public. If you really want me to come along, I will. Why me? Um, and you know I'm not a member of the Labour Party? I'm not a member of any party, quite deliberately, because I work with too many. It's much easier to work with lots than one. Um, um, I'll use anybody who will table my questions, basically. Let's be blunt about it. Um, yeah. When I wanted a general anti-abuse rule, I even worked with George Osborne. Um, <laughs> George Osborne worked with me because he knew he couldn't get it any other way. Um, so, you know, um, but he asked me to go along, so I did. And I discovered 
But they sent me the policy. I said, you know, why? And I discovered 70% of his economic policy had been lifted from my blog. <coughs> and so I was credited with being the author of Corbynomics, and I never wrote a word of it. They just borrowed it all. Um, it was quite strange. It was great for book sales, though, I have to tell you. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, he said we could collect $120 billion. That's my estimate of the UK tax gap in total. <coughs> Actually, I've never said we will collect more than $20 billion of it. I think we could collect $20 billion of that tax gap. And I think that would be transformational in terms of what we could do, um, in terms of cuts and the austerity agenda and all sorts of other things. But he managed to miss out the point that only 20 billion was recoverable. But even if you could recover 20 billion in the UK, you would make a significant difference to the whole political narrative. And that's my point. We can change political narratives by doing this. How much mileage is there from changing the direction in which taxes? the method in which tax is collected. So, you know, you've mainly been talking about income and profits tax, I think, but presumably there are forms of tax that are much more difficult to avoid. So how much mileage is there in shifting the whole approach towards something that's more difficult to avoid? Well, a lot of people argue that um, indirect taxes, VAT, are harder to avoid. In fact, they have a higher evasion rate. I have an almost insignificant avoidance rate, VAT. Um, you know, it is the tax, it's not the highest um, of tax gap in the UK, but it's the, the most significant in many ways um, in terms of the total number that the revenue recognise in the UK. The revenue think that 10 to 11% of VAT in the UK is not paid. Now that's 10 to 11% on the UK's top line. But then they refuse to accept in their calculations that if 10 to 11% of the UK's top line is not being taxed, which must be the case if that amount of VAT is not being paid, then 10 to 11% of all the income working down, if we look at the UK as if it was a profit and loss account, I am a chartered accountant, forgive me, but that's how I view the world. Um, if you go down, if you are missing the sales, there's nowhere on the UK national tax return to reintroduce that income later on to tax it to income tax, corporation tax, or anything else. So therefore, there must be at least that much of income tax and corporation tax and so on lost. But they claim only 1% of income tax is lost. That is just impossible. Absolutely impossible. You can't lose that. And by the way, even if you cut out the criminal element of the VAT loss, which is 1.5%, so it's 9.5% is lost due to fraud of VAT, then you must have lost all the other taxes, corporation tax, income tax, national insurance, and so on, those as well. So direct taxes, um, indirect taxes are not necessarily the answer, is the first point to say. Um, and VAT is not a solution, although most economists argue that indirect taxes are much more economically efficient. Um, I have put forward something which I call a cut, a uh, which is CUT, a carbon usage tax. Now, that's actually to sell it to the Green Lobby. I mean, I will throw myself around to whoever will actually um, support me politically. And I work quite a lot with Caroline Lucas, so Caroline needed something, so I wrote one for her. Um, if Caroline asks, I do it, I tell you. <laughs> um, if there's one politician who I'll jump for, it's Caroline. Um, but the carbon usage tax is, in fact, a financial transaction tax on people's bank accounts. Um, two countries in the world have tried this, to actually levy a tax on the flows of money through your bank account. So every bank account would have to be identified as to an owner. 
You would be able to nominate all your bank accounts, so you would not be charged on transfers between your deposit account and your current account or your current account and paying your mortgage, for example, because they are all your liabilities or assets. But so you'll be able to move money, but the moment money moves from you to somebody else, it will be considered a transaction and you would pay tax on it. And you would pay it progressively. So if you only spend 20000 a year through your bank account, you probably wouldn't pay almost any carbon usage tax because your footprint will be small. But if you spend $2 million a year through your bank account, you will pay quite a high rate of carbon usage tax. It's a progressive, indirect tax. Basically, it means if you have a yacht, you will pay a lot of tax. Um, and that's the absolute intention of it. But also, it would also be a tax on speculative activity too. We do not at present, in the UK, tax non-work activity well. I mean, we really have come up with the most bizarre tax system in the UK, where any form of speculative activity is automatically taxed at a lower rate than any form of activity from work. National insurance is the thing that guarantees that. So that if you work for a living, you will not only pay income tax, but you will pay 12 plus percent personal uh, national insurance up to 43,000, and you will pay, the, your employer will pay over 13 percent national insurance, so a combined rate of maybe 25 percent at some levels of tax on top of income tax. But there's none of that. If you, live, uh, if you, if you make your income from rents, for example, there's no national insurance on rents. There's no national insurance on dividends. There's no national insurance on interest. So the rentier economy is taxed vastly lower than the work economy. If there are shirkers in the UK economy as a result, they are actually the people who we identify as capitalists, not the people who we identify as workers. This is an you know, inverted Marxist economy. We tax labour incredibly highly, and we let capital off incredibly lowly. That is a reverse from the 1980s. This is a deliberate <coughs> change of strategy. We could reverse that by literally having a financial transaction tax on flows through people's bank accounts. Is it very likely? I don't know. Australia tried it, and it worked, but it was politically unpopular. Brazil tried it. They did it at a flat rate of 0.38%. It was so successful that it paid for a national health service in Brazil. Why don't they have it now? Because, well, it was a bit like Trump or the Republicans. We don't want a national health service. We want a profit-centred health service. We don't want everybody to have access. We only want those who can pay to have access. And so they destroyed it by taking away the tax. So the Brazilian tax was cancelled to make sure that they went back to a private health service instead. But it was the health service that motivated it. So we can create different forms of taxation, but it would require the identification of the beneficial ownership of bank accounts. Of course, the other downside of that is that once actually you are taxing flows through bank accounts, the revenue have access to bank account information. And a lot of people don't like that idea. So there is a human rights, civil liberties angle to this. I mean, one reason why I am fairly confident that some tax havens still exist is that, for example, our security services have to make their payments through somewhere. And Jersey is very convenient. It's very secret. Presume MI5 and MI6 are behind part of it. I do. I know this is being recorded. Hi, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I assume I'm bugged all the time. <laughs> it's a part of life. <laughs> yeah, so <clears throat> if we get some victories with tax havens, tax evasion, tax avoidance, will we still lose the war because of incoming lower taxes? Ah, the race to the bottom. 
Obviously, that's a risk. Um, this is a, you know, a political risk. Will we actually end up with no corporation tax in effect? Um, will the argument that the incidence of corporation tax falls on labour and therefore we shouldn't have corporation tax win the day? Um, it's an argument I have with the Oxford Centre for Business Taxation quite often because I think the Oxford Centre for Business Taxation should be better known as the Oxford Centre for the Non-Taxation of Business. Um, I haven't been invited to many conferences there for a while for saying that. And the argument is, I mean, if you look at a paper by Mike Devereux, which has been incredibly influential, Professor Mike Devereux at Oxford, wrote this paper which said, oh, but the incidence of corporation tax falls entirely on labour. Well, actually, Mike's work was based entirely on looking at corporation tax increases. And what he discovered over a period of time was that if countries increased corporation tax rates, real wage rates were falling. He concluded as a consequence that the incidence of corporation tax was on labour, not on capital and not on consumers. Therefore, corporation tax is bad for labour. He never tested what happened if you had a corporation tax cut. Because the corollary should be, of course, that therefore wages have risen. We have had successive corporation tax cuts in the UK, from 33% in 1997 to 20% now, with the plan to go to 17%, and who knows where from there. Have we seen a significant increase in real wages as a result? Oddly, no. Actually, what Mike identified was that no country puts up corporation tax unless it is in some form of financial stress. At the time when countries are in financial stress and therefore trying to raise tax revenues, they're also probably the time when they're in an economic downturn and wages are declining. There was no obvious link between these two events, but he concluded, and people have argued this now for 15 years, based upon, maybe not 15 years, based upon his work, which does include also all the mad normal macroeconomic assumptions like free movement of capital, you can relocate from one country to another costlessly and back again, there is no strike, or if there is a strike, there is no cost to it. Oh, all the usual bizarre assumptions of you know, standard macroeconomic theory, which are just total nonsense. Um, Mike knows this. He knows that I don't agree with any of this stuff, so I'm not saying anything here which is particularly unusual. Um, I just don't believe that stuff. I actually do believe... And I believe that the behaviour of large companies and the behaviour of their advisors suggests that they all think that the incidence of corporation tax is on capital, their shareholders. And by and large, I think it is. I would not claim it all is. I think that would be absurd. Obviously, some could be on labour in some situations, although I have never yet found a manager who has told me, hey, the corporation tax rate is reduced, therefore I can be more generous in my wage settlement this year. I have asked a lot. I've never heard anyone admit that. Um, I do think there is some relationship potentially between corporation tax and um, sales, but that is only, therefore, obviously an indicator of imperfect markets. If you can change your price because the tax rate has changed, you must have some degree of monopoly power because you are clearly not supplying where marginal cost equals marginal revenue. Now, marginal cost equals marginal revenue is nonsense, as any economist or any accountant will tell you, because we don't know what marginal cost and marginal revenue are, and therefore the whole theory of market competition, which is absolutely predicated on those two being equated, is nonsense. Um, you know, I prepared thousands of sets of accounts in my life and I still can't tell you what profit is let alone anything else um, I genuinely can't tell you what profit is because it's what number you'd like it to be in most cases um, <laughs> as I demonstrated in the lecture I gave yesterday to some people um, but 
we still have these arguments that, coming back to your question, that corporation tax is a bad thing because it's an economically inefficient tax. It distorts the allocation of capital, and anyway, capital doesn't pay it, um, labour does. I think that this is one that we just have to win by argument. I took part in a debate last year um, organised by the World Bank, uh, where we argued, uh, I argued against an American think tank, um, a guy linked to the Heritage Foundation, um, Dan Mitchell, Centre for Freedom and Prosperity and Heritage Foundation, about was tax, corporation tax a good thing or not? And I gave ten good reasons why I think corporation tax is a great thing to have, not least because it does guarantee source taxation. If you have residence taxation, which is what happens when you get rid of it and you only pay tax on dividends, then you only pay tax where the taxpayer is. The taxpayer will automatically re-register themselves in a tax haven. You won't collect any money. You won't collect any money in the country where profits are made in the future as a result of it, and on and on and on. It's also highly efficient to collect corporation tax because one company pays it. You don't have to go to a whole pile of individual taxpayers to try and find it. So cutting corporation tax makes no sense. And actually, if you talk to companies, not the dogmatists who run politics, but if you talk to companies, they aren't asking for corporation tax cuts. Because if you actually go and talk to a company, ask them what influences your behaviour decision, apart from the wonderful answer which once came from BT at a conference at Oxford University, which was the chairman's wife, (laughs) which was really bizarre. Um, That was the biggest influence on their decision to relocate part of their function to Paris, Um, apparently. Um, Then they said it publicly. Um, In most situations, the factors that influence behaviour are um, good infrastructure, well-trained employees, strong social security system, um, rule of law, all the things paid for with taxation. So actually they aren't looking for a low tax environment. They are looking for a strong tax environment with predictable tax rates which they can deal with. OECD average rate at the moment is 24.5%. Most companies would happily pay 24.5%. think it's a price worth paying. But the political dogmatists are driving it downwards. Okay. Next question on... Um, is about land and housing. Yeah. So we know it's about 69% of the land in England is owned by 0.6 of the population. 32% of the land is still owned by the aristocracy. But that's not important. Most of the land that was available for housing that was under the control of the state, local authorities, and government agencies that was suitable for housing, most of that was actually built over housing after World War II. Yep. Even not much land available post thing about 1980. Are we going to be able to tax ourselves out of that situation? Because we remain in the situation even if we get good collection of taxes and before we tax the Rate, base, a steady rate. We still end up in a situation where too much money, too much income of the individual is going to be going into rent or mortgage, leaving you know practically nothing to build up the economy. Yeah, I mean, this is the Georgists' argument for a land value taxation. Um, I'm not a Georgist, and I think that many Georgists who argue that land value taxation can replace all other taxes 
uh, and some of them do argue that, is naive. Um, I don't think you can run an economy on the basis of a tax, which is what the pure Georgists would argue. Um, I'm no golfer, I promise you. Um, I have played a, a couple of rounds in my life, and I do know that a golf player goes out with 14 clubs, and I think that land value of taxation would be like trying to play a round of golf with a sand wedge, which I'm told is not a good idea. Um, you, know, you, you can get out of the... No, I'm not, I'm no, 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 I'm just arguing that it's not a good... No, I'm, just arguing, I'm, I'm, I'm covering the argument. But... So, but Having said that I don't believe that land value taxation can be the solution, which some Georges will argue, I do think we do need a major reform of the taxation of land in the UK. Um, it is the, the current land taxation we have does not reflect wealth, quite clearly. As you say, I would argue for a wealth tax. I don't see the problem with the wealth tax now. Wealth taxation could not happen until we had automatic information exchange because you could simply re-register your, income, your property outside the UK, you could not therefore capture it. One of the accidental advantages, which Thomas Piketty did not foresee, was that automatic information exchange doesn't actually let us track offshore wealth for the first time. You may register your land in the UK in the BVI, but now we can go to the BVI and say, who owns that company, please? And we can therefore actually try to tax it. Um, so we have an advantage that we didn't have before, and unimaginable only a few years ago. Um, and that's true with other forms of assets as well. So we can begin to make a wealth tax. We should not be charging council tax the way we do, because council tax is one of the most regressive taxes we have in the UK. It is very obviously unfair that a band A house, the lowest band, can, uh, is, has a fixed ratio of tax to pay, which is about 25% of the highest band, which will include properties worth millions in London. And, and within any area, that ratio is fixed. Um, and so if you look at why the uh, tax distribution in the UK is so obviously unfair at the lower two deciles, that is one of the major contributors is the fact that council tax is now charged on those on low income, even if they're on benefits. They have to make a partial council tax payment. Um, that and other indirect taxes penalise them heavily. So we do need to fundamentally reform the way in which we look at the taxation of land, uh, and that would include also some substantial changes to the exemptions which are available for, for example, agricultural property. Why do we not charge agricultural property to inheritance tax? Wouldn't it be better if actually agricultural property was subject to inheritance tax and ownership of agricultural property might change from generation to generation? It might actually encourage new people to go into farming. Instead of that, we have very few people going into farming. It's an incredibly concentrated um, activity, which not, is not necessarily good for the UK economy that it's so concentrated. Why do we um, exempt all business property from capital gains tax on debt, or inheritance tax on death, and give it many capital gains tax advantages, like entrepreneurs' relief? You know, if somebody sells their own private business, they pay 10% capital gains tax in the UK. So we give away... I think it, it, the last time I looked, it was over three billion of subsidy to at about a cost of 1.8 million each person who got it. Um, but that was when they had sold their business. Business needs an incentive when it's starting and then the subsidy to get it going, not a subsidy when it's ended. These people aren't entrepreneurs anymore when they're selling their businesses. They're now wealth managers. They're not adding to the UK economy anymore. They're just literally now savers. Savers do not create value. The last thing we need in this country are more savers. 
last thing we need, you know, that's literally the last thing. We have too many savers in this country. And yet we encourage the concentration of wealth and saving. That's partly because we don't understand the theory of money, but that's another issue altogether. Um, so I would reform not just land taxation to make a progressive land value tax, which would hit those concentrated, established owners of land, but I'd have a wealth tax, and I would probably charge capital gains tax on death as well on domestic houses. Whew, that one goes down well whenever you mention it to a politician. But, you know, something about people who die, they don't need their houses anymore. It's true. They're dead. I once took part in a discussion on um, the Jeremy Vine show. I'm a regular on the Jeremy Vine show on Radio 2. It's something I don't, shouldn't put on my CV too often. It's really a bit embarrassing. Um, but I do it uh, quite regularly. And um, there was a person there from a right-wing think tank talking about, you know, oh, how terrible it is that children can't inherit their parents' homes. And this was a year or two ago. And I said, do you know, if I waited to inherit my parents' home to get on with life and to have a family and everything, I would still be waiting. And at the time, I was 56. So how sad are the people who wait for their parents to die to get hold of the house before they can think about starting life? Because my dad's still going strong. Dad is 90. And as far as I can see, dad's got a fair few years in him yet. I will be an old age pensioner at this rate before I could even think about getting dad's house. And I know damn well dad's not going to leave me the house because <laughs> I did the worst thing on earth. I'm the black sheep of the family. I became a chartered accountant. And that was the last thing any member of our family was meant to do. Dad does not approve of anybody who's not an engineer, so, you know, I'm not going to get the house. So, you know, how stupid is that? But this is the argument. We must pass on the family wealth. No, this is nonsense. We have to understand that dissipation of wealth is fundamental to creating a fair and balanced society, but our tax system doesn't do that. So I agree with you, but I've answered it tangentially over a whole range of issues, not just <coughs> land. But land taxation has to be transformed if we're going to get anything approaching fair taxation in this country. We also need a universal basic income, by the way. Just lob that one into the next one. Just in case. The impact of Brexit on any of this? Do we want to cry now, or do we... Um, look, the impact of Brexit is unknown. Um, it's an opportunity, in some ways. Let's imagine a hard Brexit. Well, if we, I, mean, we, I don't think we have to imagine very hard after this morning. You know, we, We're going to have a hard Brexit. Um, so we're going to be outside the single market... Um, we're going to be outside the customs union um, I am worried not so I mean, I, the, the nature of the agreement with Europe is obviously worrying because Philip Hammond has said he's quite willing to actually use London as a tax haven um, if they don't agree to give the city what it wants then we will go into aggressive tax competition the only winners from aggressive tax comp uh, competition are those with wealth because that will reduce tax rates on companies. It will encourage the diversion of more income from those who have money left over at the end of the week into companies. And it's obvious, isn't it? You only get an advantage by diverting your income or wealth into a company if you don't need to use it. If you need to pull it out of the company again, you're going to pay income tax at current rates immediately. So you can only get an advantage from corp low corporate tax rates if you are not reusing that money. Therefore, it encourages the concentration of wealth and the accumulation at a faster rate of the wealth of those who are already wealthy. Exponentially, their growth, gro growth of wealth increases at a higher rate than that of those who have to actually uh, work for a living. Um, so this would inevitably be bad for equality. Um, tax competition relies heavily on secrecy. Um, because again, 
that is the only way in which. Sorry? If Haman was to do what he says, what he even threatens, would it actually bring him more money? Let's look at some of the examples of companies who've relocated recently to the UK. Let's look at Starbucks. Um, Starbucks relocated their European head office to the UK um, as a result of all the publicity. You know, paying 20 million of voluntary tax didn't work. They decided they had to actually move to the UK to try and appease. How many jobs came to the UK as a result of their relocation of their head office? Anybody like to guess? Eight. That's it. Head office functions, which are w- the basis on which tax is paid, have remarkably few employees <coughs> attached to them. But let's also be clear, most large companies are not also investing. If you're talking about bringing more money into the country, the reality is that business has stopped investing. One of the reasons why we run perpetual government deficits is if you looked at sectoral balance accounting in macroeconomics... The business sector is not investing. The overseas sector is, bizarrely, insisting on saving in the UK. We run a massive trade sector and they don't demand to be paid. And, by and large, private individuals are running neutral at the moment with regard to saving and investment. They're actually not saving or investing overall. Um, Net borrowing is being replaced by repayments. If you have basic double-entry accounting in a single currency, sterling, Some people who insist on three parts of the economy, the private sector, the overseas sector, and the individuals, who are insisting on either not borrowing or saving or insisting on saving, somebody's got to be a borrower. That must be the government. The government has no choice about whether it runs a deficit or not. It's determined by the rest of the economy. The private sector businesses are refusing to invest and have done for a long time. Net private sector investment is poor. They're saving, they're not investing. So if we lower tax rates to bring business into the UK to invest, the big multinational business sector is sitting on the vastest piles of cash. Now, the estimates vary. I mean, the commonly quoted number is around $750 billion. If you look, include the US, then that number can go up to $2 trillion. That they're sitting on cash piles. They aren't spending. They don't know what to spend money on. We are actually out of ideas. Capitalism is bereft of a future because there are no technical innovations apparently on the horizon requiring investment. Electric cars aren't going to be it. They're minor. It's just a variation on a car. Batteries, when they come up, which is another big technical innovation we need, you know, the new batteries are going to be incredibly cheap because most people are looking at doing them on recycled food waste, which is now being considered as a potential battery source. You can't get much cheaper as a raw material than that. Um, you know, there is no big innovation on the horizon, so people aren't investing. And consumers aren't spending enough to encourage investment anyway. So will they bring money in if they reduce the corporation tax rate? No. Do they encourage investment? No. They just add to the corporate tax piles. That's all. And what does that do? It encourages volunteerism. What else does it do? It encourages them to lend to governments instead of paying tax. Remember, that's what large companies are doing. They're not paying corporation tax, they're lending it to the government, and we're paying for them to give it to the government instead of demanding it by taxation, which is the government's right. I'm a moderate on these issues, as you can tell. It's all gone quiet. Have we run out of steam? <laughs> call it a day for there, but um, I say thank you very much to Richard Thank you. Appearing to us, so thank you.
that's the end of our show. Thank you for listening. You can find all our content on soasradio.org and also on cist.soas.ac.uk. 